Welcome to the Preconception Podcast, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to guiding women through the preconception period. Our mission is to make sure you have the information you need in order to have the healthiest pregnancy possible, whether that happens next month or next year. The decisions you make today can significantly impact the health of you and your future children for years to come. So each week on our podcast, we'll discuss one piece of the preconception puzzle. This way, you can enter pregnancy empowered, informed, and in the best health possible. Join us on your journey and have today be the day you start planning your perfect pregnancy. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Preconception Podcast. Today we have Dr. Serena Ibrahim-Raban on to speak to us a bit about postpartum depression and planning a pregnancy um, when you've experienced this prior. Serena is a social and health psychologist who received her doctorate from Stony Brook University and focuses on social psychological aspects of health, particularly reproductive health. So we're really excited to have her on the podcast today to talk about this really important um, issue. So hi, Serena, and thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. So before we get started, I'd love to just have you tell the audience and the listeners a little bit more about yourself. So if you could just share a bit about your background and your education um, and how you really got interested in this field. Sure. So as you mentioned, my name is Dr. Serena Ibrahim-Raban. I received my BA in psychology and health science at Cal State Fullerton, where I worked in a child development lab and a fibromyalgia lab. Then I went on to earn my MA in psychology as well as a PhD in social and health psychology at Stony Brook University. And as you mentioned, my research focuses on social psychological aspects of health, particularly reproductive health in both men and women. And I have spent most of my time in my doctorate program researching stress and expectant moms and dads. And I really became interested in the effects of stress and what it actually does to our mental health and also our psychological and physiological responses to stress itself. And I found that pregnancy was actually a perfect context to examine stress because it includes a distinct start and end period. So I believe that expectant moms and dads really deserve an opportunity to enhance their well-being during this critical time. And I think it's also important to actively work towards enhancing our knowledge of prenatal and postpartum health. And the lab I worked in uh, during my doctoral training investigates psychological aspects of reproductive health, including pregnancy and fertility and birth. And we actually focus on stress coping and their impact on mental and physical health. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, um, as our listeners know, uh, my background is in OBGYN. And of course, we see a lot of both during pregnancy and after pregnancy, as well as, as you mentioned, um, often when people are trying to conceive, particularly if they're having difficulty conceiving, um, we see a lot lot of mental health disorders during that time. And I don't think that they get the appropriate amount of attention that they deserve, um, both from a social standpoint. So I just don't think that women in general understand that these exist and that, um, you know, they're actually quite common. And I also think from a medical perspective, a lot of our, our healthcare system just doesn't really recognize this as an issue, or if they do recognize it as an issue, you know, specifically with postpartum depression, as we'll be talking about today, um, people often don't know what to do with it, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, even in OBGYN, when I worked, of course, we recognize postpartum depression as being something that is common, 
um, and that needs to be screened for. But um, after that, you know, the resources can be really limited sometimes, specifically in finding someone who's experienced um, in talking about this in the context of reproductive health, you know, as opposed to someone who maybe just handles depression in general. Yeah, and so, yeah. And so I find it really exciting when, um, you know, I get to discuss these these topics with people like yourself who really focus on the reproductive um, timeframe and, and have expertise in this area. So thank you so much again. I'm really excited to um, put this information out there and I hope it helps some women. Um, so to start, let's have you define what postpartum depression is. Sure. So postpartum depression, or we call PPD, is defined as an episode of non-psychotic depression according to standardized diagnostic criteria with onset within one year of childbirth. And PPD is a common mental health problem that affects not only moms-to-be and new moms, but also the entire well-being of the family, really. Absolutely, including mm-hmm. children that, you know, women have, whether that's the new baby or, or um, you know, children that were born prior. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So how common is PPD? So um, the prevalence of PBD ranges from approximately 10 to 15%, um, but can be as high as 30%, actually, depending on the criteria being used for diagnosis. Um, so it ranges. The symptoms of postpartum depression are actually really similar to the symptoms of depression, and they may include crying more often than usual, feeling of anger, withdrawing from your loved one, uh, feeling numbness or disconnect from your baby, um, feeling guilty about not being a good mom, or doubting your ability to care for your newborn. So it is similar to symptoms of depression, but it's more obviously we see postpartum specific. And how might a woman know if she is experiencing what is sometimes called the baby blues. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't know if I love that term or not, Yeah. but, um, <laughs> but how would, how would someone know if they were experiencing some kind of just transitional depressive feelings versus actually having postpartum depression? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so postpartum blues or what we call, as you mentioned, baby blues is the most common observed mood disturbance, um, with estimates of prevalence actually ranging from 30 to 75%. So the symptoms include irritability, tearfulness, generalized anxiety, um, sleep and appetite disturbance. So it sounds a lot like depression, right? Um, But Mm -hmm. following childbirth, many women experience mild depressive symptoms. But these typically resolve within approximately 10 days. um, And they're attributable to different things from the stress of giving birth to recovery from anesthesia administered during labor and delivery from the lack of sleep you're experiencing, obviously, and the stress of caring for a newborn. So it's very similar to the type of feelings you would experience when you have PBD, but it usually resolves within two weeks. Of the birth itself. Of the birth itself. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And Mm -hmm. now you mentioned earlier when you were talking about the definition of postpartum depression, that it can occur up to a year after giving birth. Is that correct? That's correct. And I I think that's when um, I kind of get angry about this issue because as you may know, postpartum checkups usually stop after six weeks. Yes. So how do you know that your patient or this new mom is still not persistent in her depression or her depressive symptoms, and she's not getting checked. So this is something I kind of wanted to save till the very end. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
but <laughs> I'm we don't want to play you up too early, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just like it's kind of it's infuriating because these women have experienced such an amazing, sometimes traumatic event of giving birth, and um, when they experience BPD or if they experience BPD, then they're not being seen after seven, six, seven weeks, mm-hmm. um, which is unfortunate. Yeah. And Mm. also something that is fairly unique to the United States, you know, we have one of the worst, I would say, um, maternal health systems. And I mean, truthfully, that's not even me saying that's statistics saying. Um, But I think that that absolutely continues into the postpartum period. And part of that, um, which we'll talk about a little bit later is, you know, the lack of resources available to women in the U.S., Um, one being the lack of postpartum follow-up and visits. And a lot of that has to do with insurance status and, you know, when you're considered to be postpartum versus when you're not. Um, From a medical perspective, as you mentioned, that's a lot different than maybe an insurance perspective. Um, And I think that creates a lot of uh, problems and contributes to some of the lack of follow-up that we see on topics like postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. So if a woman can develop postpartum depression up to a year after childbirth, What's the most common time frame that women tend to develop these symptoms? Is it is there a most common period or you know does it really range where some people have it really early and some people have it much later like towards the end of that first year? Yeah, it it, it ranges. Um there's no specific statistic that I found or read. Um but if you do develop PPD then it, it typically will um be persistent within like For example, if you develop it within that fourth week of postpartum period, you will likely have it within the fifth, sixth, seventh week, unless um, you're actively seeking support or you're actively seeking the help of your physician or a psychologist or something of that sort. So, and that's part of the issue why we don't have these like set statistics because we don't necessarily know what women may be doing in order to either help their PPD or, um, they may not necessarily know they do have PPD and those symptoms persist, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, a great segue into kind of why we wanted to do this podcast mm-hmm. episode is one of the one of the factors, obviously, for a lot of women in the preconception period is dealing with, you know, the after effects of a prior pregnancy. Um, whether that was a pregnancy that ended in miscarriage or one that, you know, went full term and, you know, women are then dealing with, with later effects to maybe a really happy, healthy birth, um, that can sometimes be caught off guard by things like postpartum depression or baby blues afterwards when they don't Mm -hmm. feel like they quote, have a reason to be sad. And so I want to touch a little bit on how pregnancy itself relates as a risk factor for postpartum depression. So do we see pregnancy as an inherent risk factor itself for depression? Or is it more the circumstances leading up to pregnancy, surrounding the pregnancy, and then after the pregnancy that, you know, cause the increased risk for postpartum depression that we see in women? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, And one that we're still is, is fairly new. So what we know now is that one of the greatest risk factors for developing PD, PPD, excuse me, is antenatal depression and or depression prior to pregnancy. So if you have a history of depression and if you're depressed during your pregnancy, then your your risk of of developing PPD is much higher. And the researcher researchers are really only at the beginning stages of discovering 
biological factors that may contribute to the etiology of postpartum depression, but there are numerous known um, psychological and social risk factors. And I did some research and we found, I found that a previous meta-analyses have identified the following, that following risk factors that contribute to PPD. And these include um, lower social class, life stressors during pregnancy, complicated pregnancy or birth, uh, difficult relationships with family or a partner, uh, lack of support from family or friends, a prior history of psychopathology, so that's depression and anxiety, for example, chronic stress, stressors during the postpartum period, so this can include problems with childcare and difficult infant temperament, for example, um, being unemployed, having an unplanned pregnancy, being ambivalent over becoming a new parent, and um, like I mentioned before, depression during your pregnancy. So these are all social risk factors, but the etiology of postpartum depression is still like a fairly new field that we're working on. Yeah, thank you. That's such Mm -hmm. good information. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that's important to note about those, as you mentioned, is that a lot of them are social or external factors Mm -hmm. um, that are affecting the women and not necessarily things inherent to her, um, aside from the fact that, you know, Genetically, women may be at higher risk for developing depression or anxiety specifically. Right. Um, but a lot of those other things are actually things that could be modified. Um, whether it's under the woman's control or not, you know, is difficult to say because they're so multifactorial. Mm-hmm. But I think that in some ways that gives us hope, right, that, that we can actually possibly prevent a lot of what we're seeing with postpartum depression if we have the appropriate identification and resources in play, um, probably even before pregnancy. And of course, we always, we always look at the preconception period being Mm -hmm. what we specialize in. But I always emphasize that because I think it's really difficult when you're in pregnancy, and you have a lot of the pregnancy specific stress Mm -hmm. um, going on to address things, you know, you have a a time crunch, if you will, while nine months can feel really long for a lot of women, it's actually Mm -hmm. relatively short amount of time to address things like pre-existing depression or, you know, social issues, um, such as like, a you know, lack of childcare or lack of insurance or whatnot. And so I think if we can put some of the focus specifically in women who, uh, who have experienced postpartum depression with a previous pregnancy on what we can do before pregnancy to decrease some of these risks, Mm-hmm. Um, I think that could really benefit, you know, women individually and then kind of society overall when we look at, you know, these high rates of postpartum depression that we're seeing. Right. I agree with you 100%. I think that um, it's, there's some good news in this, right? Like you mentioned before, most of this is social factors. So, and I think that's why a lot of OBs and psychologists are so passionate about post- the postpartum period is because we can make these changes in order to make the lives of women, new mothers specifically, easier and transition into motherhood easier uh, because we could not not control these circumstances, of course, but we could um, build this type of support that they need in order to decrease the risk of developing PPD. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So while we're on this topic, what possible complications might a woman experience during pregnancy? Um, if she's has either a pre-existing condition of depression or anxiety, for instance? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. So elevated depressive symptoms during the postpartum period are associated with um, fewer developmentally enriching parenting behaviors. 
such as reading to their child or singing songs to your child. And the studies show that PPD may affect the cognitive and emotional development of the child. And in terms of maternal health, um, depression has been associated with excess weight retention after childbirth, um, compromised functional status, and somatic complications, all of which lead to greater use of health services. And um, as we discussed in the beginning of this conversation, uh, my research is based on stress during pregnancy. And a large body of research establishes that elevated stress during pregnancy can impair fetal development and increase risk of adverse birth outcomes, including things like low birth weight, preterm delivery, or an unplanned cesarean delivery. And high prenatal stress also increases the likelihood of poor offspring outcomes in infancy, childhood, and also adulthood. And uh, prenatal stress produces these effects through neuroendocrine, immune, cardiovascular, metabolic, and behavioral pathways. So interesting. And you mentioned this a little bit, but, you know, postpartum depression, I would say, gets the most attention of any mood disorder related to pregnancy. Mm -hmm. But there are, are other ones, aside from depression, that can affect women before, during, or after the pregnancy. Can you talk a little bit about those other conditions? Postpartum affective disorders are typically divided into three categories. Um, postpartum blues or baby blues, non-psychotic postpartum depression, which is what we're discussing today, and then their psychosis. So we talked about um, postpartum blues, and psychosis actually includes very severe depressive episodes, which are characterized by presence of psychotic features classified as psychosis. And these are these are different from postpartum depression and etiology, um, severity, symptoms, and treatment. So the presenting symptoms are typically depressed or elevated mood, which could fluctuate rapidly, uh, disorganized behavior, delusions, and hallucinations. And follow-up studies have actually shown that the majority of women with psychosis meet the criteria for bipolar disorder. So what that's one of them, psychosis. And the other thing I want to talk about is postpartum rage or postpartum anger. I don't know if you people have talked to you about that before. It's still like really new. I feel like yeah. and, I've yeah. had a few, a few patients, but I agree it's really new. And yeah. you know, this a lot of the screening tools that we use focus more on the depressive symptoms. So it right. may be that people just aren't sharing those feelings. Exactly. So I wanted to like kind of touch. I wanted to touch on that a little bit, and we kind of overlook these other possible affective reactions to pregnancy, childbirth, and uh, postpartum stressors. So, for example, researchers examined the prevalence of anger in postpartum women, and they actually found that more than one-third of women were experiencing moderate to high levels of this emotion. And postpartum anger is independent of depressed mood and also independent of prenatal anger, which suggests that anger in the postpartum period is triggered by events around the time of childbirth and that transition to parenting itself. And then studies have showed that childcare stress was a potent predictor of postpartum anger. And other research has shown that following an unexpected surgical delivery, so a C-section, um, some women experience guilt, a sense of failure, or a reduction of self-esteem. The other thing I wanted to say is that a little, little attention has been given to anger and other negative emotion in the postpartum period. And this kind of, like we were mentioning before, reflects a restricted understanding of women's emotions. I feel like we need to focus a little bit more on anger since this is so high and 
kind of normal in, in post in the postpartum period. Yeah, and I think, you know, that can be a really difficult thing, both for women and providers, um, mm-hmm. to determine what is, quote, normal, you know, amounts of sadness or anger or anxiety, right. uh, and what is actually a clinical condition. And, mm-hmm. you know, where on that spectrum, women should be seeking treatment, right? Right. Um, and I think it both it both speaks to the fact that we just need to speak about it more so that we have more information, more data, more experiences. I think if women talked about this with other women more, they'd probably find that a lot of women are experiencing these symptoms and that they're mm-hmm. not by themselves with this. Yeah, um, sure. But, you know, it also can help with determining exactly where that transition happens. And, you know, I say exactly, but it's not really an exact point, right? It's different mm-hmm. for everyone. And exactly. we have this diagnostic criteria, but when it comes down to it, a lot of it is how much it's affecting the woman's life, right? Like, is right. this is this something that is occurring infrequently and is, you know, relatively well managed? Or mm-hmm. is it significantly affecting, you know, the family, the woman, maybe her job, etc. Exactly. I also wanted to talk a little bit about, because we're talking about other disorders, and I think it's important that we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder after childbirth. Yeah. And um, this could actually affect women greatly. And research estimates that postpartum PTSD may affect 17% of new moms. And women who develop PTSD after birth may feel fear, helplessness, nervousness about their experiences during childbirth. And they suffer recurrent overwhelming memories, flashbacks, thoughts, and nightmares about the birth. And this may make them anxious and distressed. So what's interesting about this and why I bring this up is that birth trauma is actually misdiagnosed for having PPD. So postpartum PTSD may have may happen due to a loss of control during childbirth and labor, fear for their baby's life or health, severe physical pain, and even not having enough communication from their provider. So I want to mention that because um, it's just it's a, it's a tool for women to advocate for themselves because. You might not necessarily have PPD, but you may have had a terrible birth experience, for example. Um, So that's why I wanted to mention that side piece. Absolutely. And Mm -hmm. you know what? I actually feel like we could probably do an entire podcast Mm -hmm. episode on uh, PTSD as it relates to pregnancy and, and childbirth specifically, because I absolutely agree I think anyone who knows me on a personal level knows that um, birth trauma is an area that I feel very passionate at preventing, um, mm-hmm. both through kind of doing due diligence before pregnancy or during pregnancy when choosing your care providers, because that can contribute significantly to what kind of birth experience you have, right. um, choosing the location that you deliver. So one of the strongest predictors of cesarean sections can actually be the location that you deliver at, you know, Mm. not even taking into account your provider. So if you kind of control for the provider, the hospital that you deliver at or, you know, whatnot can actually contribute significantly to those unexpected outcomes, which, you know, oftentimes are surgical deliveries or something like vacuum or forceps deliveries. And so I'm sure we could talk about this all day long, but um, I actually think that probably does deserve its own podcast at some point in the future, because it's something that, as you mentioned, uh, people don't recognize. I I completely agree that I think a lot Mm -hmm. of times the feelings that people are experiencing postpartum directly Mm -hmm. relate to their birth experience. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that you can encompass that just in the postpartum depression category because it's I agree. very specific. I agree. I think it would be interesting to also discuss in the future to have someone 
um, on the podcast discuss how to choose a location and how to choose your provider and how to go about these things because if you don't if you're not aware of the risk factors I mean people may not even know PTSD after childbirth is a thing so if you understand how to set up your preconception health um, then you're you may be setting yourself up for success but it's hard to know how that even how to even do that Absolutely. And that actually is on my long list of podcast (laughs) topics Mm -hmm. that I have running. That's absolutely one because, you know, as I mentioned, I think it can be really, really empowering to have those things in place before you even become pregnant. You know, a lot of women don't recognize that their care providers are not on board with their wishes and their desires until far too late in the pregnancy. And so I think if we can, you know, push these conversations earlier before someone's even pregnant, it gives you so much more power in, you know, changing providers, changing insurance, which can, you know, dictate a lot of what happens during birth, unfortunately, um, and where you give birth and who you give birth with. And so sometimes when we think of these just during pregnancy, I think we, you know, we put ourselves a little bit into a hole where you don't have nearly as many options as you may have had beforehand. And so I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, as long as we're kind of on the topic here, how this relates back to the preconception period in your experience and you know in your research um how how do things like postpartum depression relate to the preconception period because I think that obviously we we think of them as postpartum period but people don't often realize that the postpartum period actually becomes the preconception period for a lot of women who want to have multiple children and there's a there's a term called the interconception period which is essentially between pregnancies um and I think when we talk about you know, like postpartum period and preconception period, we don't recognize that there's an overlap there and that some of these conditions like postpartum depression um, can run right into a next pregnancy. And so I just would like to hear how you feel like postpartum depression and these kind of mood disorders um, relate to the preconception period. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. And I feel like there's so much gray area there because we don't really think about that in research, thinking about like the time lapse, you know, between after, after you give birth for, and, you know, getting pregnant again. So for example, what I found in the studies that I've read show that 33% of postpartum depressive women report that their depression episode began during pregnancy and 27% even before pregnancy. So um, a risk factor for experiencing PPD is experiencing antenatal depression, as we mentioned. So you want to speak to your doctor about this, obviously, and you want to come up with a game plan to ease yourself into motherhood with your new baby. Um, But research between, you know, that period of after you give birth and then conceiving again, that's kind of a blurry line. And I think that that's why so many physicians and doctors and even myself as a researcher will recommend that you wait 18 months between pregnancies because of not only, you know, you may be depressed and you may need time to recuperate and to make sure that you're physically and mentally sound, you know, to conceive again. So I think that's why that recommendation is there. But obviously, we know that that's only a recommendation. So But I think that would be my advice to women who are experiencing PPD or who are experiencing depressive symptoms during their pregnancy is to to wait and take care of yourself, take care of yourself and your new baby after your pregnancy during the postpartum period and see how you feel about getting pregnant again. See if you 
feel like you are mentally prepared and your body is physically prepared to carry a baby for hopefully nine months plus. Yeah, absolutely. I am a big advocate for, um, I don't want to say appropriate, but I can't think of a better word now, Mm -hmm. but ideal, I guess, interpregnancy intervals. Mm -hmm. Um, And we typically recommend the, you know, minimum 18 month uh, timeframe between, and I think people will get confused about this, but that's between when you deliver and when you conceive again, not between when you deliver and when you deliver. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because I, you know, I hear a lot of people say that like, oh, well, my kids are 18 months apart. And I'm like, no, no. (laughs) Yeah. When you deliver and when you conceive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, I think that actually the topic of postpartum depression really highlights that because if you can develop postpartum depression up to a year after pregnancy and you're becoming pregnant, let's say at the nine month mark after you deliver, as you mentioned, you know, you may actually see some of that run into it. So some of the women who are developing depression during pregnancy I have, you know, I wonder, is some of that actually postpartum depression that just was, you know, not identified yeah. early or is just developing, you know, later in the postpartum period? Right. Like, lo- like residual postpartum depression from a previous pregnancy. Absolutely. That's a really good point. And I don't think I've ever read anything. I mean, I'm sure there's literature on that, but I, I haven't read anything myself about how that, how a previous pregnancy and experiencing postpartum depression would extend to the new pregnancy. So that's a really good question that I think needs more work. Well, there you go. There's a new research topic. There you go. You're welcome, (laughs) listeners. (laughs) Okay, so you touched a little bit on some of the social risk factors that exist for postpartum depression. So I'd like to talk about, you know, what women might be able to do before pregnancy to decrease some of those risk factors that we know might contribute to development of postpartum depression later on. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, So I would say, you know, I was thinking about this for a little while, and I think just becoming aware of the risk factors is so incredibly important. And I know that's easier said than done, and you don't even think about being depressed during during your pregnancy because it's supposed to be a time where you ought to be joyful. Um, But sometimes when you feel depressed or sad, it almost feels shameful in a way. And you shouldn't feel like that because that's a risk factor. So becoming aware of these things is so incredibly important. And Certain women are more likely than others to get get it after their babies are born, obviously, and uh, things that make make it um, more likely include, of course, past depression or postpartum depression, a family history of depression, mental illness, traumatic life event during pregnancy, like a death of a family member, for example, mixed feelings about the pregnancy, and when you have no strong support system, these are things that you know, you want to be mindful of and and make sure you create that standard for yourself so that you don't experience PPD. And um, if some of this sounds like what you're dealing with, then tell your doctor as soon as you find out you're pregnant. So getting help is always important. And undetected and untreated PPD places the mother at risk for recurrent disease, as you mentioned before. And many women with PPD are either undiagnosed, misdiagnosed, like I mentioned, um, or seek no metal, medical assistance. So therefore, women may go without treatment. And women at high risk who are at high risk for PPD should be identified even prior to a delivery if possible. 
And again, I know that's easier said than done because, you know, there's a lot of, there might be a lot of shame or there might be a lot of different feelings that go into it. But just reading about PBD and making yourself aware of these risk factors is important. Absolutely. And um, in one of your articles, you talk about some of the public policies or lack thereof, rather, (laughs) specifically Mm -hmm. in the U.S., that can be predictors for things like postpartum depression um, or depression during pregnancy. And I think that that, you know, that really cannot be overstated Mm -hmm. when you think about the idea of preparing for a pregnancy. And we touched on some of these, but you know, for instance, making sure that you have health insurance in place. So that can be a very stressful thing to have to deal with when you're dealing with early pregnancy symptoms, such as nausea and vomiting, you know, mm-hmm. and then having to coordinate either getting insurance or finding a care provider. And so I think that, you know, for instance, one thing would be making sure that you have access to insurance, whether that's through employment, whether that's through, you know, a state or a federal mm-hmm. plan. Absolutely. Um, or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Another thing that you mentioned is, you know, getting any symptoms that you have currently under control. So if you're experiencing symptoms of depression or anxiety or any of those mood disorders before pregnancy, you're significantly um, at risk for developing or worsening, you know, depression during pregnancy and certainly after. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that women who are experiencing some of those symptoms beforehand, even if it's not necessarily enough to be diagnosed with depression, Mm -hmm. um, could really benefit from, again, like getting that support in place, finding a therapist, you know, finding a psychiatrist, if it, Mm -hmm. if it might be that you need medication and then talking about your plans to become pregnant so they can prescribe you a medication that is safe or safer for pregnancy. Um, And then I think that we can also, you know, as women and just as society advocate for better policies. So again, if if you can do this before pregnancy, you you come from a much stronger position, but, you know, Mm -hmm. talking to your job about maternity leave, you know, paid arrangements, flexible work, things like that, before you even become pregnant Mm -hmm. can really give you the power to negotiate. Because if you're already pregnant and an employer knows that, I feel like they're much less likely to, you know, work with you. Um, or maybe less likely to work with you. But if they, if you're not pregnant and, you know, they know that you can walk away at any point and find another job, I think that that gives you a lot more power to negotiate these things that can then decrease your risk later on. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that's, it's smart to like get your, all your ducks in a row, right? It's like, yeah, you want to make sure that your employer is aware that you want a family. But also that's a frightening thing for a woman to do too, right? It's like, Hmm. Well, will they even want to hire me if I, if I ask about maternal benefits? It's kind of a shameful thing to do at the same time because you want to be a good employee. You want to be, you want to work hard, of course, um, but also some women want a family. And to ask what are your maternal benefits and when can I receive those is sometimes like a touchy subject. Not sometimes, it's, it is a t- touchy subject and it's sometimes scared to ask those questions as well. Um, Because we do have biases towards, you know, it's unfortunate, but we do have biases towards women who may want to get pregnant, but also you you just got hired for this job. Right. Although, what a good way to sort out if you have multiple job offers who you might want to. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Right. That's true too. (laughs) I'm just thinking like if you, you know, if you have two offers and 
And one employer is like, ooh, like cringing when you bring that topic up. And then you have one that's like, we're fully supportive of, you know, working right. mothers or working fathers or whatnot. Exactly. Um, I certainly think I would choose the one that I know is supportive, especially oh, if you know that's something that you want in the near future. Definitely. Um, yeah. So this one I wanted to get your thoughts on because you do talk about public policies and you you address the um problems with, you know, the United States specifically as it relates to not having paid maternity leave, not having subsidized childcare available in many areas. And so do you have any ideas on how someone, you know, in the preconception period could advocate, whether that's at a local level, a state level, federal level, for some of these changes that, you know, I would say the majority of women would really like to see occur in the U.S.? Oh, that's a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) So, I guess starting small, one thing that I would do is, like you mentioned before, when searching for a job, making sure that they have appropriate appropriate leave time for you and make sure that it's paid if, if possible. And the other problem is with fathers too. Fathers are sometimes scared to ask as well about paternity leave. During, like when they have a new job, for example, or when they've been on the job for a while and they get pregnant. Um, so starting there and you're around you, including your job, making sure you have appropriate leave time. At a larger level, I have not figured that one out yet. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe we could talk about that. Um, but it's hard to do when we have to fight for leave, for, pater- for paternal leave or maternal leave and trying to talk about it in a public sense. How do we do that when um, childcare is so expensive and we count on women in the United States to carry that, it's not a burden, but to carry the burden of childcare for also working, holding multiple jobs and or, and or roles, um, wearing multiple hats. So if you figure out the answer to that question, <laughs> let me know, anyone out there. Um, but I'm still trying to figure it out myself. So unfortunately, I don't have a straight answer for you. But I think starting small, making sure that you have proper leave to take care of your family. And then at a national level, I'm not sure yet. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I honestly think that just by asking those questions to potential employers or current employers, um, that in and of itself is a form of advocacy because mm-hmm. if if one you know one woman is the only person who asks about it in a five year period, then it's not going to feel very important. But if every right. woman that you know is hired or is a potential person that they want to bring on, um, especially people that I think have a lot of pull, you know, like if you're actively being recruited by a company, that's a great time to bring things like this up, you know, in my opinion, or to advocate at least for yourself and for other women, because you're certainly more likely to be able to negotiate that. And if they negotiate it for you, they're more likely to, you know, allow whatever that policy is to apply to all women um, at the company. I, I completely agree. I think that we need to normalize talking about it for men and women, because if it's something that you want, how are you gonna? How are you going to take care of your newborn child when they're expecting you to return back to work six weeks later? Especially if you have a cesarean delivery, even even a, a vaginal delivery is like it's 
it's a major life event and they're expecting you to return right back to work. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And I think that expectation, you know, definitely contributes to some of the stress that we see Mm -hmm. um, and the development of some of these disorders, because I can imagine that a lot of women probably feel like they're letting everyone down around them because they're, they just have like completely unrealistic expectations put on them by society, maybe by themselves, maybe by family or friends, you know, depending on, on everyone's experience. But, um, I think it's so important to just recognize that even if you're one of those people that thinks like, I can jump right back in, I can go back to work at six weeks, no problem. You know, mm-hmm. it's still good to have the option to not. And if you right. can, if you want to, you know, by all means, that's great. Um, right. Like a lot of women are superheroes, but give yourself <laughs> a little break, you know? Yeah. And, you know, and I think that a lot of women have that, that idea and some women certainly can, but it's almost like it's too late by the time you realize that you can't, right? Because then you're in the middle of it. It's really difficult to advocate for yourself at that point. Um, And, you know, it may even be difficult to advocate for yourself for your next pregnancy because you're still in the middle of all of that. Right, exactly. So starting early and making sure you ask those questions early on is so important. Absolutely. And I, you know, I do feel hopeful because we're seeing more and more companies, especially, you know, even large corporations um, and small businesses really, that are trying their best to support women and really advocating for, you know, both preconception or infertility care before pregnancy, um, providing like a lot of these social support systems that aren't in existence from a government level for women during pregnancy in the postpartum period. So I know that there's, you know, several large companies that provide women with, um, you know, tell us like support and things like that services that they might not otherwise have access to. And I think that that, you know, we're slowly getting there. I think we're slowly, slowly working towards, I wish it would be faster and I hope it can be. Um, (laughs) But I think that we're slowly getting there. And I think that the more that we can all speak up about this, you know, whether that's on a personal level, just you and your employer, or whether that's on a national level or, you know, a local state level um, with who you vote for, you know, like look at these things with candidates, you know, not to get political, but just like look at, you know, what's important for you and your family and then what the people that you're voting for feel, because, you know, mm-hmm. as you mentioned in your research, the United States is the only high income developed country that does not have some kind of mandated paid maternity leave on a national level. Exactly. And that, you know, that's disgraceful from mm-hmm. a nation that is often for many other things looked, you know, looked at as being, you know, one of the, the greatest in the world, if you will. Um, And I think that when we recognize that that's not true when it comes to maternal health, when it comes to postpartum support and family support, it really puts it into perspective what we need to work on in this country. Um, I I completely agree. We have a lot of work to do. (laughs) We sure do. Yeah. All right. So is there anything else that you would like to share for our listeners before we leave? Um, What else do I want to share? So one thing that I wanted to share is that Many women may feel depressed during what they ought, but ought to be a joyful time. And again, they, they might think it's shameful to be depressed or to feel sadness. And I just want to make sure that women who hear this or even their partners who hear this, don't be afraid to seek or ask for help. And again, it, there is a limitation when diagnosing women and it excludes all cases which have an onset later than four to six weeks postpartum. Mm-hmm. So never stop advocating for yourself. Never stop asking for help. And 
make sure your partner is fully aware of what you're experiencing so they could also be your advocate because going through this alone is not good. So make sure you seek help because our postpartum care, yeah, it's great, but it stops at a certain point, but your depression does not. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important. And um, I think that never stop asking for help message is is so important because Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, you know, people will stop asking you when your postpartum visit ends, right? Like Mm -hmm. you'll have a screening then hopefully, um, but then it stops. And unless you continue to advocate for yourself, which I completely recognize can be very difficult and overwhelming when you're in that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, that's, you know, mentioning it to your partner or friends or family or someone else that can help you advocate, you know, can just cannot be overstated. I think the importance of that, it's just critical. And I think that when you when you think about how long it can last and how long people can, you know, women can go without seeking help. There's a lot of women who have zero care in between the end of their like first pregnancy and the beginning of their second, they have absolutely no care. And so, you know, while our healthcare system is not set up to support women, like it should be, Mm -hmm. it is available if you can access the right resources and, you know, never stop asking. So if you find that your OBGYN or primary care doctor or therapist or whoever it is, is not responsive to what you're saying, like find someone else, you know, like don't let them be the last word because it's misunderstood all across the board. And that includes inside healthcare. Um, And so I think that's, I think that's a great message. Could I also say something Mm -hmm. else? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Because we're living in this time, um, women who are receiving their health, their postpartum checkups via Zoom because of COVID, not to talk about COVID. Yeah, no, that's great. Just because it's via Zoom, make sure you're reaching out and describing all your symptoms to your physician or your psychologist or your psychiatrist, whoever it may be that you're seeing over Zoom, or even if it's in the office, if you can go, because it's so much more difficult, it's so much more difficult to communicate now. Make sure you're make sure you're communicating really well because the fact that we have to do it via Zoom or minimally in person or at a distance in person can be a challenge. So again, just making sure you're um, checking in with yourself and you are bringing up anything that may be wrong or feeling wrong to your physician or to any of your doctors. Thank you. That's great advice. Can you tell us how our listeners can find you and more information about you? You could visit my Instagram at Dr. Ibrahim Raban. My handle is dr.ibrahim underscore Raban. And I post a lot of content about preconception, pregnancy, and the postpartum period, including everything that we talked about today. (laughs) Yes. And I definitely encourage everyone to look at her Instagram. That's actually how I found her. All of her information has um, resources, so you know that it's legitimate information. I know it can be difficult in the Instagram and social media space yeah. to, to know which information to speak to, but I really appreciate that you you put your references and, and your resources in your posts so everyone can feel really confident yeah, exactly. <laughs> in listening to your you know, information. Thank you. All of my information is peer-reviewed from academic journals. Yes. And that's so important. I know not everyone, you know, has a research background, but um, having something that is from an academic journal that's peer reviewed, which means that the peers of the individual who are submitting it have essentially given it the go ahead Mm -hmm. to be published is really critical. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Serena Ibrahim Riban, for coming on to the Preconception Podcast and sharing your information. We hope to have you on again to discuss some of these topics that we kind of broached today but didn't have a chance to really get into. Yeah, um, that was great. And we thank you so much for sharing your expertise with myself and our audience today. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Can't wait for us to talk about different topics next Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. The information provided in the Preconception Podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare provider to learn more about your health before pregnancy. 